Inside Outside Innovation is the podcast that brings you the best and the brightest in the world of startups and innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger, founder of InsideOutside.io, a provider of research, events, and consulting services that help innovators and entrepreneurs build better products, launch new ideas, and compete in a world of change and disruption. Each week, we'll give you a front row seat to the latest thinking, tools, tactics, and trends in collaborative innovation. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger, and as always, we have another amazing guest. With me today is a professor of Harvard Business School and author of Rebel Talent, Why It Pays to Break the Rules at Work and in Life, Francesco Gino. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Thank you for coming on the show. We connected maybe four or five months ago. You had a new article out in the Harvard Business Review, and I wanted to reach out and talk to you about that. It came out in the September-October issue, and it was about the business case for curiosity. Before we start digging into that, I wanted to open up the question of how did you get involved in innovation and why is that particular subject that seems to be core focus of your research? I, for many years, studied people who break rules and end up with poor outcomes, so for good reasons. So people who cheat and steal and behave in unethical ways in organizations And I was interested in what it is that organization and leader can do to make sure that that doesn't happen. And as I was working on this research, I was collecting stories of people who break rules and end up with something rather positive for themselves and for the organization. So so as I looked at the pile of stories that I was collecting, I was learning a lot about rule breaking that is positive. And so... I got very much interested in trying to understand when that happens and what is so special about people who do that successfully. And curiosity, as it turns out, was an important driver behind the experience of those people. Talk a little bit about the article that you wrote and some of the research findings that you highlight in that. I was struck by the fact that one of the things we're all born with is curiosity. And in fact, I think most of us probably can easily remember moments in our lives when we were three or four years old, and it was constant exploring, constant experimenting. I have a three-year-old, it's one of my three children, and just the other day she was asking, why is it that we need to wear clothes when we go outside, or why is it that we pay for things? It's those questions that keep on coming to your mind as a little child because you're approaching the world with a sense of awe and wonder. And what's interesting is that, unfortunately, that curiosity disappears almost as we grow older. In fact, if you look at the data, curiosity peaks at the age of four and five, and then it declines steadily from there. And when I looked into this, that data raised some curiosity on my part and a lot of questions. And I thought, well, maybe we do that as we grow older, but for sure, by the time we enter the workforce, we have the opportunity to really spark up our curiosity again. And I was wrong. So I collected data across a variety of people joining organizations, so a new job that people were taking across industries, across organizations, and I asked questions about their level of curiosity. And generally, same variance across the board, but curiosity was pretty high. But when you go back to the same people eight to nine months later, at least in the data that I collected, curiosity had dropped by at least 20% across the board. Hmm. And that to me is striking because curiosity is such an important driver of good decision-making, innovative thinking in organization, and it seemed like a missed opportunity. 
So I got really curious to study why that happens and what it is the leading organizations could do to encourage people's curiosity rather than shutting it down. That's an interesting point. So you talk about how curiosity is vital to organizations' performance, but yet it's not necessarily measured or really thought of as a core component to what makes an organization tick. What are some of the things that an organization or individuals within an organization can do to foster that curiosity? First, I think we need to change our mindset in regards to what curiosity can do for us. It's interesting that when I talk to many leaders across a variety of organizations, they recognize the importance of curiosity. They say, yeah, 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 if if we want innovative thinking, we really need to make sure that we bring in curious people. But then when you look at their actions or when you talk to the people who actually work in their organizations, they report encountering a lot of barriers to keeping their curiosity alive. So I think for us to change the mindset and really start to believe that curiosity is good for business is an important first step. And then for leaders to actually start modeling those behaviors, whenever we are in a meeting, are we the first one to ask, what if we were to look at this differently or how things would change if? And there are great examples of leaders who do that on a regular basis, and that's inspiring because other people will start asking similar questions when presented with problems or situations. There is a story that I tell in the book, Trouble Talent, when I talk about curiosity, on general managers at the Rootskarten in Istanbul. And he used to have regular meetings with his staff to talk about what it is that is going to get planted in the vases that go outside of the bedrooms of their customers in their hotels. And it always used to be a discussion around which flowers are we going to plant. And one time he decided to show up at the meeting and start asking questions, what if we were to plant something other than flowers? And just that very simple question raised all sorts of interesting ideas that people had to bring to the table. And they ended up planting airline tomatoes. And interestingly enough, the customers really loved the idea because you can see the tomatoes outside of your window, but also because when the tomatoes are used in some of the dishes at the fancy restaurant inside of the hotel. And so just the very fact that the leader was the one approaching the situation and asking what if or how could we raise all sorts of interesting ideas and open up others' mind to the possibility of what it is that could be happening if we just approach this problem with curiosity. It's interesting because it seems like curiosity is that early squishy nugget that starts the conversation going, but it's very hard to know what the outcomes are from that questioning. And I think that's probably why a lot of organizations stop at that next level. They're constantly looking for the outcome. They're trying to map exactly how this is going to benefit them. And that curiosity, that early stage stuff really is that squishy beginning where you don't know where it's going to go, but the mere act of asking those questions opens up opportunities around the world, I guess. Exactly. And it's often triggered by questions that start with how and what rather than questions that have a yes and no as a potential answer because a yes and no usually stops the conversation and a what and how are expensive type questions that really keep the conversations going and allow people to remain curious. So are you seeing different ways that companies are, the ones that are recognizing curiosity as a core component to their success, different ways to either measure it or acknowledge it or foster curiosity? 
for sure. One example that comes to mind is Intuit. Intuit has innovation awards every year, and innovation awards go to people whose exploration and experimentation led to new products. But interestingly, they also have a failure award. And the failure award does not go to a person whose experimentation or exploration led to a new product, but whose explorations led to important lessons learned for the team. And the part that I love the most about this example and the story about them is that the failure award comes with a failure party. And so they're creating a context where exploring is valued and mm-hmm. is intelligent exploring. So you're making sure that you're trying to experiment with the right intentions and you're trying to understand something better and allow the team or the organization to learn something important that in the future could move you in a different direction. That means acknowledging the importance of curiosity and actually, in a sense, even rewarding it uh, with a good party (laughs) celebration, (laughs) even when the exploration doesn't go so well. Yeah, we've seen that in the startup communities where some communities will hold a wake for a company that fails to foster that idea that it's okay to try, it's okay to experiment and be brought back into the tribe, even if something doesn't go exactly the way you want it to go. Exactly. And it's particularly important in a context where life is busy. I walk into a lot of organizations, and you probably have plenty of examples on your own, where it's moving from one task to the other, going down your to-do list, and making sure that you execute to excellence on all the work and all the tasks that are on your desk. And while we absolutely need to do that, when we're so focused on getting things done, we often do not allow ourselves to stay curious. And so I'm very interested in organizations and leaders, again, that have tried to keep people curious, maybe in small ways. Mm-hmm. There is a very old example that is one of my favorite in terms of the companies that I've learned about, and it comes from the first manufacturer of typewriters in Italy. So the name of the company is Olivetti. Now it's a very different company, but at the time in the 60s, when the son of the founder took over, he did so after spending some time on the manufacturing floor. So he had some ideas of what he wanted to change. And one of the things that he changed, again, remember, this is the 60s. So I think what he (laughs) did was actually quite remarkable. So he decided to shorten the day, the work day, but also give people two hours for lunch break. And he used to say that the first hour was to eat lunch and the second hour was to eat culture. And during that second hour, he used to bring in poets, novelists, musicians, people who could give talks or sing or show their crafts to the workers. And he did so as a way of inspiring their curiosity. He also opened a library inside of the manufacturing plant with over 10,000 books and magazines so that during that second hour of the lunch break, people could visit the library. And so it was just an interesting idea to try to give people the space to look at their work, broaden their interest, to have a different perspective and remain curious. I love that example. And that's a great example in your book, Rebel Talent, where you showcase how companies have have done that in the past and, and how it might affect companies in the future. Beyond that, in Rebel Talent, you talk more about also the other characteristics outside of curiosity that really make for a rebel (laughs) from the standpoint of, and the goodness of what that means to be a rebel. So can we talk a little bit about the book and talk about some of those other traits that you've identified in your research in and around this idea of rebel talent? Absolutely. So the book was very much inspired by the idea that I think we think about rebels the wrong way. 
I wanted to explore stories of leaders and workers and organizations and people much more generally for whom rule breaking has been a constructive force rather than a destructive one. People who challenged the status quo in ways that really drove positive change. And so I traveled a lot for the book, learned a lot about these rebels. And what I was trying to do is identify their secret recipe to success, if you will. And so I identified five talents. One is curiosity, which I think is almost a turbocharger. It's a really important talent that they will share. Then they have a talent for novelty. So rather than going for what's familiar and what's comfortable, they go for what's unfamiliar and uncomfortable. They have a talent for perspective. Most of us come to situations or problems looking at them from one angle, it's usually our own perspective, and instead rebels broaden their perspective and look at problems and situations from all sorts of angles. And then the other two are the talent for diversity and the talent for authenticity. Mm -hmm. Diversity is important because rebel basically push back on social roles that society passes upon us. And authenticity is important because, again, most of us being human beings tend to conform to what others are doing and the rebels instead stand out and they make sure that they express their views, opinions and preferences. With these particular traits, are these inborn traits that uh, rebels exhibit or are these types of traits that you can foster or engage or educate yourself about? We can definitely foster these traits. And in fact, a part of the big motivation of writing the book was to say, yes, we can be born with these traits, but most importantly, each of us has them inside of us and we can bring those out. I am often reminded when I think about this question about a quote that comes from an Italian artist and sculptor, Michelangelo Bonarotti. And I once came across something that he wrote in terms of how he described the sculpting process. And he said, sculpting is a process whereby the artist releases an ideal figure from the block of stone in which it lumbers. And I often mention this quote because when I first read it and I came across it, I I almost paused. In fact, I did pause. I had to think through it for a few minutes. He raised the question to me of what if we were all to start with the assumptions that all our colleagues or the people in our lives are people who fundamentally have these talents and our role as readers, as colleagues, as parents, as friends, is to do the sculpting, to help people bring those talents out. And so I'm very much of the view that you don't have to be born a rebel, but it's more of a question of having the courage and the license to bring those talents out and to learn how to do so effectively. I love that concept and the fact that everybody can play a part in that. And that maybe comes back to that question from an organizational perspective. Can this curiosity and this focus on rebelness how can it be effective if it's being driven by either top-down or bottom-up? How does it play a role in, in actually moving an organization forward when you have so many different things that can affect it? Yeah, it requires a little bit of thoughtfulness on the part of leaders, if at all possible. There are very simple ways to make sure that these talents do come out. So take curiosity, since you were mentioning it. One very simple way to foster it or to really encourage it is in addition to giving people performance goals, which is something that is quite common across organizations, all sorts of organizations, 
how about also giving people learning goals? I would say that's not too complex, not too disruptive, in fact, but it really helps people keep their curiosity alive. So part of the motivation of writing about these ideas in HBR and also in the book was to say, look, if we really believe that more rebelliousness in the way I'm defining it is good for business, and I'm hoping that I brought to bear a lot of evidence in the book that that is the case, then there are very simple ways to encourage it in others. And so I am hoping that more leaders are going to do more of the scouting in all sorts of simple ways that help them bring these talents out in others. Talk a little bit about some of the obstacles that you must overcome, I guess, to make this part of the organization or part of your own individual work life. There are two. One is at the leadership level. And there, the biggest challenge to me is a sense of fear Mm -hmm. that if you allow for curiosity, if you allow for this talent to really come out, you're going to end up with chaos. And I think that fear finds its roots in the fact that if we are really about encouraging these talents and really keeping curiosity alive, we are basically telling people, I trust you. (laughs) And we are giving them more space and more autonomy to do the things that they do well. And so leaders who have done that well are leaders who trust people. And with that comes actually good judgment on the other side of knowing when to be curious and when to get the work done. But there are also leaders who have been quite clear on making sure the people that are aligned on the values and then they give people more flexibility on the how. So that's important on the leadership side. And on the employee side, I've seen almost this tendency of throwing the towel up and saying, well, if the leaders doesn't encourage it, I need to wait. I need for them to change. And then I can really make sure I'm bringing these talents out. And I've tried to push against that idea. I really believe the change starts with each one of us. And if we really take this talent seriously, they're not threatening. We can use them more often in our day-to-day at work and outside of work without creating changes that completely require the organization to get rid of its leadership and bring in leaders who believe more in this way and this type of thinking. So I think that independent of whether or not the leadership supports it or whether you think that they will, it's mm-hmm. important for us to take the first step. And I think we're going to show them the way. And you mentioned the the idea of you have to bring in some of this talent sometimes. Is there a particular way that you can hire for this talent, for this rebelness? Yeah, I would think of it in terms of thinking about the different talents separately. So for instance, let's imagine that you're hiring for perspective and diversity. There are good examples from my work that suggest that you can do so very easily by paying particular attention to the type of answers that people give during interviews. There is a CEO and founder of a startup in New York called Catch a Fire, and when she hires people, she interviews them. She gives them problems that the company is facing or has faced in the past, and then she pays really close attention to the answer to try to see if the candidate's way of thinking is different from hers. Hmm. And if that is the case, she hires them. So basically, she's bringing in people who she knows are going to argue and challenge her thinking. 
that's staying true to the idea of perspective and diversity. And so you can absolutely hire for these different talents. Again, it requires a little bit of thoughtfulness. Well, I love it. And thank you very much for uh, being on the Inside Outside Innovation Podcast to tell us a little bit more about curiosity and this idea of Rebel. Pick up a book uh, called Rebel Talent. I encourage everyone on the audience to do so. Francesca, if they want to find out a little bit more about the book or about yourself, what's the best way to do that? People can visit the book website. It's called the rebeltalents.org. And there they can also find a free test. It takes about seven, eight minutes to complete and it's going to tell you which type of rebel you are. And so give you also some feedback on other talents that you might want to keep on your mind as you move forward. Thank you very much for being on Inside Outside Innovation and look forward to continuing the conversation in the years to come. Same here. Thank you so much, Brian. That's it for another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. If you want to learn more about our team, our content, our services, check out insideoutside.io or follow us on Twitter at the IO Podcast or at Artinger. Until next time, go out and innovate.